Jesus is brilliant. I don't know how often we think of him in those terms, but one of the ways he demonstrated his brilliance while on planet Earth was with his uncanny ability to communicate masterfully the Word of God with such accuracy and authenticity that it left the crowd spellbound. Regardless of whether Jesus was standing on a Galilean seashore or walking a dusty Palestinian road or speaking in a local synagogue or preaching from atop an Israeli mountainside, regardless, the impromptu, off-the-cuff sermons of Jesus left the crowd on the edge of their seat longing for more. Every time Jesus spoke, he issued an invitation. Such is the case in the most infamous sermon that Jesus ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. When you and I come to the conclusion of that powerful sermon, Jesus issues an invitation. The reason is because Jesus did not preach just to pass the time. Jesus preached to demand a verdict. Jesus did not preach just to impart information, but Jesus preached to seek transformation. Jesus did not preach just to give ethical teaching for our delight, but Jesus preached to give eternal truth for our decision. Life is stuffed with decisions, but your decision whether or not to follow Christ is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life, bar none. In fact, that decision whether or not you are going to be a follower of Jesus determines your destiny. You do realize that life is so much more than the here and now. One day, all of us will die. And when we die, we will reside in one of two very real places. Either we will go to a real place called heaven, or we will spend eternity in a real place called hell. In heaven, we will enjoy God's presence and his joy and his favor. Or in hell, we will experience his wrath and his condemnation for all time. And the decision and the difference between heaven and hell is wrapped in the earthbound decision of whether or not you are going to be a follower of Christ. So this decision carries huge ramifications. This decision is enormous. This decision is eternal. So with that in mind, I invite you this morning to not only hear the invitation, but also to heed the invitation of Christ. If you have your Bible, I invite you once again to turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It's located today in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's that passage that we give our attention this morning. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 7, we'll be reading verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus describes all of life as two roads. These two roads have two gates. These two roads with two gates lead to two distinct destinations. Ironically, both of the roads make the same promise. They claim heaven this way, but Jesus says that only one of those roads can make good on the promise. 
A lot of people believe they're going to go to heaven when they die. In fact, the vast majority of people want to go to heaven. Very few individuals willingly and voluntarily board the bus called hellbound. Most people want to go to heaven. That's true in the first century. It's still true today in the 21st century. In a recent ABC news poll, it was reported that in America, nine out of 10 Americans believe in a God. And nearly 85% of Americans believe they're going to go to heaven when they die. If you and I can agree with Jesus that all of life can be summed up as two roads, then certainly you and I must also agree that most people believe that either road will get you there. And this is where there's going to be a rude awakening. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been discussing righteousness. In fact, we've said this is the buzzword of the Sermon on the Mount. It's employed by Jesus some five times in this sermon. Jesus speaks the word righteousness in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. On five occasions, Jesus uses this understanding of righteousness. And you and I have discussed over the last several months that righteousness is not only declared upon us by God, but it's demonstrated by us before God, that God has declared us innocent in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in light of that, then we demonstrate right living before a watching God. This righteousness today, I can try to describe it in this way, that all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been comparing and contrasting two forms of righteousness. The one we can call cultural righteousness. The second we can call Christ righteousness. Cultural righteousness is really no righteousness at all. Christ's righteousness is the one that's been endorsed by Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Let me try to explain it this way. Cultural righteousness is based on human achievement. But Christ's righteousness is based on divine accomplishment. Cultural righteousness believes that salvation can be earned Christ's righteousness believes that salvation cannot be merited for you cannot earn the very favor of God. Cultural righteousness believes that heaven is a right for all people. Christ's righteousness believes that heaven is a gift from God. Cultural righteousness claims that if you do more good than bad, then you'll, skip the ta- uh, uh, then you'll tip the scales in your favor and God will be obligated to let you into his kingdom. But Christ's righteousness says that there is no way you and I can do enough good to stand one nanosecond in the very presence of God Almighty. Cultural righteousness claims that holiness is external obedience to a list of rules of do's and don'ts. But Christ's righteousness claims that holiness is literally Christ living in us. There is a huge difference between cultural righteousness and Christ's righteousness. When we come to our passage this morning, what Jesus says is that cultural righteousness is a wide gate on a broad road that leads to destruction and many are on it. But Christ's righteousness is a narrow gate on a narrow road that leads to eternal life and only a few find it. So on this day, Jesus is saying what he said some 2,000 years ago to weary travelers. He's encouraging us to change lanes. He is saying he's inviting us and imploring us and pleading with us to leave the broad road and come to the narrow road. 
So his invitation is simply a five-word phrase. It's found at the very beginning of verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. That's it. That's the invitation. Enter through the narrow gate. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to get you and to get me to enter through the narrow gate. The reason Jesus came to live among us was so that you and I could enter through the narrow gate. That's the reason Jesus came. So this morning, I want to break that five-word phrase down into its three working components. First, Jesus says, you must enter. The Greek word that's translated enter is a second person plural aorist imperative. It's at this moment that you say to yourself, pastor, you just lost me. What in the world did you just say? When I say that it's a second person plural, what I mean by that is that Jesus is giving this invitation not just to a single person, but he's giving it to the entire crowd. We've said before in good Southern vernacular, what Jesus is saying is y'all must enter. The gospel call goes out to all. Jesus is telling anyone who will listen, you must enter. It's second person plural. To say that it's aorist is to say that it's an action that must take place sometime in your past. In other words, Jesus is saying, you must enter before it's too late. You say to yourself, well, when is it going to be too late? I'm glad you ask. It's going to be too late when either you die or Jesus comes back to rescue the church, whichever happens first. Now, here's the trick. Not a one of you knows when you're going to die. You, like me, we know our birth date. But we have no clue what our death date's going to be. And no one knows when Jesus is going to return. In fact, the scripture says that no one knows the day or the hour when the Father will say to the Son, go get your church. So we don't know our death date, and we don't know when Jesus is going to return. So what Jesus is saying 2,000 years ago is what he's saying today, that today can be the day of your salvation. That today you must enter. You must enter before it's too late for you. You must enter before you breathe your last. It is aorist. It, is, it, is, it, is, it must take place in the past. Second person plural, aorist, imperative. The word imperative means it's a command. This is not just a suggestion of the Savior. This is a mandate of the Messiah. You must enter. It's not that some of us are born on the right road. No, we've got to be reborn on the right road. We, we by nature, are born travelers of the broad way. By nature, we go the way of the world. By nature, we follow after our sinful cravings and its desire. And by nature, we are born under condemnation. If God did not love you, then God would not have to send Jesus to save you. He could have just left you and me in the mess of our lives. So Jesus wants to be very clear that if you refuse to go through the narrow gate on the narrow road, that leads to eternal life, then when you die, you will go to a very real place called hell. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to echo the words of Jesus. 
And Jesus says that if you die without going through the narrow gate on the narrow road, if you die refusing to follow Jesus, then you will go to a very real place called hell and you have no one to blame but yourself. You cannot say it's God's fault. You cannot say that God's not being fair. Oh no, my friend, God is being very fair with you because he is a holy God. He is a just God and he cannot allow your sin just to be swept under the carpet. Now he's paved the way for you to enter eternal life and it's through Jesus Christ. He has paved the way and he has given it to you. So Jesus says, y'all must enter. First, you must enter. But secondly, Jesus says, you must enter the gate. According to Jesus, there are not multiple gates and there are not multiple roads that get to heaven. There's only one gate on one road that leads to one place called heaven. In John's gospel, Jesus identifies himself as that gate. He says, I am the gate. He who enters through me will be saved. In John's gospel, the author uses seven messianic metaphors to describe Jesus. Jesus uses seven I am statements. On seven occasions, Jesus identifies his divinity. He he clearly claims that he is God. On seven occasions, Jesus says things like this. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And ultimately, he says, I am the vine. On seven occasions, Jesus uses the vocabulary that was was reserved for God and God alone. It dates back all the way to the opening chapters of Exodus, where God spoke to Moses through a burning bush that was on fire, but not being consumed. And the prophet said, "Uh, what is your name? And the Lord said, I am who I am. I am the God who always has been always existed, always will be. I am sent me to you. And when Jesus speaks the phrases, I am, he uses the language, the vocabulary of God Almighty. So Jesus is saying not that he's another God, a creation of God, a lesser God, or merely similar to God. He is saying, I am God. Jesus never had an identity crisis. He never had to sow his wild oats. He never had to find himself. He knows who he is. Jesus declares, I am the gate. Now let's just be really intellectually honest this morning. Either Jesus is for real or he's a fake. There's nothing in between. I mean, if you take the words of Jesus at face value, either he's Christ or he's a con. Either he's Lord or he's a liar. Either he's the Holy One or he's a hoax. Either he is the divine or he has duped us into thinking he's someone that he's not. You've got one of two extremes into all of the world religions that say of Jesus, well, he was a good teacher. He was a ethical leader. He was a religious rabbi. There's a Greek word for that. It's called hogwash. There's no way. I mean, either Jesus is for real or he's a phony. There's nothing in between. And I have put all of my eggs in the Jesus basket. I, I, 
I am completely sold out. I am completely convinced that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I, I completely believe that Jesus is Christ. He is Lord. He is for real. He's the Holy One. I am convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, I've staked my life on it. I've given him all that I have, and I belong to him. I am convinced that he is Christ. But this morning, I wonder, are you? Jesus says the only way you can get to heaven is by entering through the gate. And the gate is Jesus. But you ask yourself, how do I do that? How do I enter into Jesus? And the answer is by exclusive faith in the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. For when you believe that Jesus literally took your place, you should have been the one nailed to the cross. It was because of your sin that you should have died. And yet Jesus died in your place. He was placed in your tomb. And on the third day, he was raised to give you eternal life. When you believe that, then my friend, you have entered into Christ. When you believe that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When you believe that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe, my sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow, then you enter in. It is only by exclusive faith in the accomplished work of our Lord Jesus Christ that we enter into him, that we trust him as Savior, and we turn from our wicked ways. And Jesus says that many will not enter in. Really, only a few enter in. Jesus compares and contrasts the many to the few. Once again, if we, if we look at the world's population today, we know that there are some 7 billion people on planet Earth just today. The most liberal of estimates tell us that no more than a third of today's population identifies in some form or fashion with Christianity. That means that an overwhelming majority, 67%, or 4.5 billion people, readily today acknowledge that they are outside of Christ. These 4.5 billion people are followers of Islam, followers of Judaism, followers of Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, atheism, agnosticism, or some other ism. These are individuals who acknowledge that they are on the broad road. They're thinking that somehow that's going to get them to heaven because all roads get to heaven. Yet Jesus says that only exclusive faith in Christ through the narrow gate on the narrow road leads to eternal life. And now some of you are connecting the dots and you're asking yourself, preacher, are you trying to tell me that all those other world religions are going to hell? 
I've got some friends, pastor, who are, um, who are, uh, is, who are Muslim. I've got some friends that are Jewish. I've got a, a coworker who's an atheist or an agnostic. Are you trying to tell me, pastor, that they're going to go to hell? I'm trying to tell you that unless they change their lanes, unless they go from the broad way to the narrow way, unless they go through exclusive faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that person will reside forever in hell. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying because I'm just echoing the very words of Christ. Can I go one step further? I I don't think that today 33% of the world's population actually are followers of Christ. You can say, well, pastor, that's pretty narrow-minded. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm not trying to be narrow-minded. I'm just trying to have the mind of Christ. Do you realize that in today's standard, Jesus would be labeled the most narrow-minded person on the planet? You do understand this, right? I mean, Jesus says it is a narrow gate on a narrow road that leads to eternal life. I, I, I fear that there are a lot of people even on the inside of a stained glass window in some church across America or the world today. And if you ask them, are you going to go to heaven when you die? The response will be something like this. I hope so. I think so. If you depress them, why do you think so? They would say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I try to help people. I try to do more good than bad. Do you know what they're describing? They're describing cultural righteousness. For cultural righteousness says, as long as I do more good than bad, it will tip the scale in my favor and God will somehow be obligated to let me into his kingdom. Oh, my friend, there is no way that you nor I could do enough good so we could stand one second in the presence of God Almighty. If it wasn't for the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, if it wasn't for his righteousness, if it wasn't the fact that we were clothed in him, we would have no shot of getting into heaven. This morning, I want you to know that y'all must enter, and you must enter the gate. There are not multiple gates. There are not multiple paths. Jesus clearly says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It is by exclusive faith in Christ that you can enter into eternal life. Some of you know that I don't do a whole lot with Facebook. It's not because I have an aversion to Facebook. It's because I'd probably have an addiction to Facebook. I mean, if I had a Facebook account, I'd probably be on it all the time. Now, if you have a Facebook account, nothing wrong with that. My wife has a Facebook account, and she keeps me up to date with all the things that are going on in the world of all of our friends. And, and so um, I, I kind of vicariously have a Facebook page through my wife. Several, several months ago, Jane Ellen connected with a friend named Dawn. They went to school together years ago at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And the correspondence between Dawn and Jane Ellen was so compelling, gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, that I just had to share it with you today. So allow me to read the Facebook correspondence. It begins with Jane Ellen. 
She says, hey, Don, I, I see a lot of your posts about being a life coach. What's that all about? Don replied, I am a certified life coach. I help people realize life intentions. I help them to achieve more peace and joy in their life. I work mostly with young adults on issues like stress, anxiety, and life choices. It's a lot of listening and asking questions so a person can find his or her own answers. Jane Ellen replied, that sounds so cool. You know, we kind of have that in common. Davin and I try to help people find peace and joy in the midst of life's stress and challenges too. Only we use God's word and his love through Jesus Christ. Just what you do, use godly principles too. This is her reply. I use more of a universal spiritual approach. I do talk with clients that are open to it about finding their connection to a higher power. It doesn't matter to me if it's Jesus or Buddha or nature. As long as they connect and surrender to a higher power that works. I sort of guide people to find their own personal divine. To me, it's God. But if they find it another way, that's fine by me. My friends, I read that to you. And I am heartbroken and I am narrow-minded, I admit. But there are a lot of people like Dawn in our culture. There may even be some people like Dawn in our churches. I tell you that because I realize that we live in a society that would applaud her for her spirituality. In fact, it would be revered as what genuine 21st century spirituality ought to look like. And my friends, I'm not judging her. I'm just analyzing actions. And I'm saying that Dawn, like so many others, are as lost as a golf ball in tall weeds. Because this person is traveling the broad road. that They went through the broad gate. There are a lot of people that are around them. They're following the masses, thinking they're following the Messiah or some Messiah of their own conjuring. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus says to you and he says to me, I am the gate. Y'all must enter. You must enter the gate. Hey, look, my friends, we have the serum of salvation. It is called Jesus the Christ. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him. And like Peter and John, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. And Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin, you know what? We've got a bad case that can't help us. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and about what we've heard. Oh, my, my friends, I wish that God would give the church a holy dose of can't help us where you and I cannot be silent because we've seen too much and we've heard too much. We've experienced too much. We've been forgiven too much. There is no way that we can be silent. Why? Because we have the serum of salvation. We have Jesus living inside of us and Jesus is sticking out of us and Jesus has given us the sweet swap of salvation. We give him our sin. He gives us his salvation. We give him our raunchiness. He gives us his righteousness. Oh my friend, it caused me to stand 
stand and shout and say, praise be to God, because we have been given the truth of salvation. And the devil has said, just pipe down and keep quiet. Oh, my friend, today, I want to challenge you. Say something to someone about Jesus. You're bound to bump into a pagan today. You're bound to bump into somebody who doesn't know Jesus. And I want to tell you just to speak the good name of the gospel, just to proclaim the good name of Jesus. Do it today. Speak to somebody about Jesus. And I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I will pray about that. <laughs> Brother, sister, let me tell you, you don't need to pray about that. Tell somebody about how God has forgiven you. Tell somebody that you have the peace that passes all understanding. Tell somebody that you've got the joy that the world can't take away. Tell somebody that Jesus is your Lord and Master. Tell somebody that Jesus is coming back one day. Tell somebody because you're bound to bump into a pagan. Just tell somebody something about Jesus. And then just stand back and watch what the Holy Spirit will do. And you just might have a Holy Ghost party going on right there. Jesus said, y'all must enter. You must enter the gate, but third, you must enter the narrow gate. It was John MacArthur who said that the narrow gate ought to be understood more as a turnstile than a gate over a driveway or a bridge over a road. He said that a turnstile is narrow. You know what a turnstile is. It's that little apparatus with a bar across it. You have to go through it to get into a sporting event, an amusement park. If you go with us tonight to Bartow Arena, you have to go through a turnstile in order to get in to the Festival of Hope. Have you ever noticed that you can't go through a turnstile in a group? You ever tried to do that? You ever tried to go through a turnstile as a group? It just won't work. You've got to go through one person at a time. You enter into Jesus one person at a time. Your faith is personal. You can't borrow the faith of your parents or your grandparents. You can't borrow the faith of your friends or your coworkers. You can't borrow the faith of somebody else at church. Your faith has to be yours. It has to be personal. John MacArthur says that there is a, an element of, of, of work and effort and struggle as we enter through the narrow gate. Have you noticed those turnstiles become more narrow the older you get? If you don't believe me, all you have to do is just go with me tonight to Bartow Arena and I'll, I'll show it to you. Because there are people, in order to get through that turnstile, they got to suck and tuck and twist and wiggle <laughs> all the way through that turnstile. Because the older you get, the smaller the turnstile becomes. John MacArthur said that there is an element of entering through Jesus that it, 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 is, it requires effort. 
In Luke chapter 13, Jesus was talking about the struggle of salvation. And one intuitive bystander raised his hand and asked the question, are you trying to tell us that only a few people are going to be saved? And Jesus looked at him and said, make every effort to enter the narrow door. Because when the owner of the house gets up and shuts the door, you'll be standing outside knocking and pleading. That word effort means work, strain, struggle. By that Greek word, we get our English derivative, agonize. There's a part of us that agonizes over salvation. Because even though we are blood-bought by the power of Christ, and even though we are, we've been adopted into God's family, we are uh, the Lord's both now and forevermore, we are still sinners. We are sinners who have been redeemed. We're sinners who have been forgiven, yet at the same time, we still struggle with sin, and there's an agony over sin and self and Satan, and there's a struggle and a fighting over the thoughts of our mind and the words across our lips. There's a struggle and a fighting for the gospel in the marketplace and for the preservation of the sanctity of marriage and the preservation of the sanctity of life, both in the womb and in the twilight years of existence. And we are fighting and we are struggling to pass the baton of the faith from our generation to the next generation. There is a fighting, there is a struggle, there is a work, there's a wiggle. And, 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 and Jesus says, you must enter through the narrow gate. The apostle Paul says to the Philippians that you must work out your salvation. He never says work for your salvation, but he clearly says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is a working, there is a struggling, there is a wiggling because we know that we do not want to sin against our Savior. And John MacArthur is right when he says that narrow gate is more like a turnstile. And while Jesus is telling us to follow him, we follow through him, we follow into him, and yet still we struggle with sin, don't we? And we still struggle with self, don't we? And we still struggle with Satan. But do I need to remind you that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world? About 12 months ago, I was preaching at the Love Lady Center, which is a drug rehabilitation facility for women and children. After I got done, a lady by the name of Alicia came up to talk to me and she said, I have tried to find peace and joy in life, but I can't find it. I invited her just to follow Jesus. And then she asked me, which one? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, there are a lot of Jesus is in the world. There are a lot of versions of Jesus that I hear about. Which one should I follow? And I invited her to follow the biblical Jesus. I said, you follow the Jesus you read about in the Bible. You follow the biblical Jesus who is the second person of the Trinity, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father. You follow the biblical Jesus 
who stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. You follow the biblical Jesus who was born in obscurity and raised in poverty. You follow the biblical Jesus who lived a perfect life and never committed one sin. You follow the biblical Jesus who tells us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him daily. You follow the biblical Jesus who was whipped for your benefit. You follow the biblical Jesus who died on your cross. You follow the biblical Jesus who drank every every last drop of God's holy hostility and took the bullet that had your name on it. You follow the biblical Jesus who was placed into your tomb. You follow the biblical Jesus who was raised on the third day. You follow the biblical Jesus who ascended into the heavens. You follow the biblical Jesus who promises to come back and rescue you. You follow the biblical Jesus for he's inviting you and he's imploring you and he's saying to you, y'all must enter the narrow gate. I came this morning just to tell you that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Please, church, hear the invitation of Jesus when Jesus says to you and he says to me, y'all must enter the narrow gate. Perhaps you're here this morning. And can we just really be honest? When you assess your life, you have to conclude that you're traveling through the broad gate on the broad way and there are many that are around you and it leads to destruction. And this morning Jesus is saying to anyone who will listen, change lanes. Just go and put your blinker on. Just come on over. Just change lanes and enter through the narrow gate on the narrow road, and it leads to eternal life because only exclusive faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ will grant you access into God's kingdom. So this morning, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not completely sold out to him, if you're not completely following through his narrow way, then today, heed the words of Christ. Enter through the narrow gate. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord Jesus, your word, I hope, is clear. And Lord, I pray that your gospel is full of compassion and conviction. And Lord, my prayer is that people receive it today as your word. And Lord, if there's one listening to my voice who's never traveled through the gate of Jesus Christ by faith, I pray that today be the day of his or her salvation. Oh, Father, maybe we have people on our heart and we want to come and kneel at the altar and pray. Maybe we need to join this church. Maybe... We need to make a commitment to you that we're going to talk to somebody 
about Jesus today. Oh, Lord, may Satan no longer keep us silent. May you pour out upon us just a holy dose of can't help it so we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard and experienced. Oh, Father, we pray that you're so real to us that woe to us if we even try to keep our mouth shut. Help us to be bold. Help us to be obedient. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.